0: I'm Jamie Lewis, a food and drink writer based in San Luis Obispo, California, and this is Consumed, a podcast about eaters, drinkers, makers, and thinkers across California and at its heart, the Central Coast. Thank you for listening. Consumed is sponsored by my friends at Slow Life Magazine. I remember when Slow Life first came out. It was a skinny but mighty magazine intent on sharing the stories of people who live, work play and give in san luis obispo today the magazine is no longer skinny at all it packs loads of interviews information inspiring stories and my food column which covers dining trends up and down the coast find slow life in your mailbox every other month by subscribing at slow magazine.com who buys an oyster farm at 25 years old neil maloney does an energetic entrepreneur with a heart for marine biology, Neil bought the Morrow Bay Oyster Company in 2008 and has since transformed it into one of the most preeminent and sought after oyster farms in the U.S. As a marine biology major in college, he wasn't entirely sure which direction he wanted to take his career, but he knew it would need to be on the ocean somewhere. Little did he ever imagine it would take him to the heart of the American culinary scene with international chefs like Daniel Boulud as fans of his product. In this interview, Neil and I talked about his path in the aquaculture business, the science behind oyster farming, the significance of caring for his business and his family. And about that one time he and Katy Perry and Orlando Bloom hung out. Enjoy my chat with Neil Maloney. Neil, thank you for coming to my house. Thanks for having me. You are so busy. I tried to get you for the last season and it was like
1: I'm the worst. Well no,
0: it's, <laughs> it wasn't that. It was just scheduling. I thought my head was gonna explode. And yeah. I'm sure you did too. Yeah, well
1: I have a two year old and that is and uh we don't have any childcare, so my wife and I make it work with grandparents, and so we're constantly if I'm not working, I'm watching a two year old.
0: How so. do you do that without child care?
1: Uh so my we have great Family here in town, and Both so sets. Um, no, my my parents are up in the Bay Area, and they okay. help my brother and his yep. children. Um, my wife's family is born. Uh, well, she's born and raised in Cambria. They came oh. from LA, and so um and her mother Sonia is uh, a retired Montessori school teacher, and that's Bill right. Nick, I know Sonia. Yeah, I forgot all about symphony, that. Right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> she plays a violin that's in the solo right. symphony, and uh and Bill uh, Kristen's father. He's retired as well, and so they've graciously volunteered to watch her two days a week. And she just gets, she just loves going to see Baba and Papo. And um, so I either drive her up to Cambria, or uh, they come to our house. It's just whatever works best for whoever is watching it that day. And then my Mm. wife's a labor and delivery nurse, so she works three days a week. She
0: is, yeah. She does God's work. (laughs) I cannot, yeah, right. I cannot believe you're able to make that without. Any kind of you know, I know. paid help, but Sonia is—I could see her loving.
1: Oh, she, she loves it. She's, she's got such a two kind granddaughters. She's got three person. granddaughters, two grandsons, mm-hmm. and she just she's got a lot of love to give. Yeah, yeah, it's great. For and sure. then uh, my wife, so full time for her, three days a week, and yeah. then for me, I own my own business, and so I can. That's kind of that flexible piece that mm-hmm. allows it to work because I I watch her every weekend if my wife has to work, and then during the week if things change, I just ask the boss for a day off
0: well and you must have a really great team supporting you then i do
1: and it's taken years to get that i mean it it was a stressful thing thinking okay we're gonna have a kid what are we gonna do i can't keep working like this and i had to start really letting go of some of the control that i relied on to run my small business that Mm -hmm. you know small business owners get so caught up in the Mm day-to-day and i realized like i need to delegate everybody talks about delegating but you really need to in order to give yourself more life and raising my daughter is yeah. my life. So, yeah.
0: Um, who do you have on your team? I mean, how many people are you managing from moment to moment?
1: Yeah. So right now, um, I've got five people and that number seems to stay between five and seven. Um, it's not always a bottleneck, but if we have five and we lose somebody cause you know, people's life happens yeah. and, um, then it, it just becomes, the days get a little longer for the staff that's left because the same job needs to happen and so we get mm-hmm. a little more overtime. Um, but right now, my farm supervisor, Kyle, he's been with me for over a year and it takes, you know, our oysters take 14 to 16 months to grow and it's so, so you have to, yeah you have to be with me for, you know, at least a year before you've seen the whole cycle, yeah. you know, a little over a year and so, um, we get, you know, a variety of people, different backgrounds. Nobody ever comes to me and says, hey, I'm just leaving this other oyster farm. Are you hiring? It's like, hey, I've been working in a restaurant or I've been mm. working in retail or I just graduated college with a math major, a lit major. history, mm. and, and I, you know, people from all walks and Backgrounds: People from the East Coast, uh, you know. Really? Yeah, I had a I had a farm foreman for a while that was actually from an oyster farm uh, Mm -hmm. over by Island Creek in um, up in on the East Coast. Is that Maine or something?
0: New Hampshire? That's
1: Boston. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, and um, near Boston. And so he uh, he was with me for a few years, and uh, he was the only employee that I ever hired with previous oyster experience. But he saw (gasps) Craigslist ad from the East Coast pretty crazy that is crazy
0: so as you say small club (laughs) yeah right yeah right 14 to 16 months to see the whole cycle come through i mean i think about the patience of a winemaker you actually have to have more patience it's very
1: similar to farming and and to winemaking in a sense i mean we stress the oysters out like we Mm -hmm. like wine you want to stress the grapes Um, we have some seasonality we sell year-round like you sell your your you around you kind of have to plan for it like mm-hmm. how much wine to get through and
0: and are you constantly what's the word for it like propagating planting or planting seed okay
1: yeah we buy baby oysters from a hatchery and so hatcheries take mommy and daddy oysters and they spawn in a tank and then uh, once the larva is ready to settle they grind up oyster shell and pulverize yeah. it and run it through a sieve till it's so small that only one larva could fit on each little grain and the oyster even the oysters you eat, they have like around the edge of their tissue, they have their mantle tissue, they have um chemo receptors, and that's the equivalent of a nose. Mm-hmm. They can smell or mm-hmm. taste, whatever you want to say. And photoreceptors, which like we think more of like a scallop that can close up or a clam that closes up yeah. when the shadow goes over. It's kinda the photoreceptor they don't use as much for day-to-day. It's more part of the re- reproductive cycle of paying attention to the light cycle throughout the year. It changes and mm-hmm. they say, Oh, we should get ready to spawn. Days are getting longer, let's start spending our energy on reproduction. But when they're larva, they can smell that oyster shell. So they raise them in a tank. The larva is just getting fed algae, fattening up, and then they pour it into um, a setting tank that's got the sand spread out. And the larva just dive down to the bottom. And at that point, they're kind of a snail. Mm -hmm. They go through metamorphosis, and they turn into a bivalve, grow their second shell, and they just live on that grain of sand for the rest of their life.
0: You're blowing my mind. Were (laughs) you a bio major or something?
1: Uh, Marine biology, invertebrate zoology. I can geek out with you. Uh, no, you can't because I can't do that.
0: I'll be honest, half the things you said, I was like, I need to get a textbook and refresh We can back it up. I can, I can do the,
1: the fifth grade version.
0: <laughs> tell it to me like I'm five. Right. No, tell it to me like I'm three. I
1: actually
0: Office, had to do that the well other done. day. Oh my God. We my kids and I were talking about the Electoral College. Try explaining that I to don't a even seven. Understand. Who no. It? no, I know. And so they were asking me about how does that work? And I had to pull up YouTube. It was so humbling. I had to pull up YouTube and I actually spoke into the mic and said, explain the electoral college to me like I'm five. And it gave me a video and we all looked at each other and I did another explain it to me like I'm three. So perfect. I feel like Michael Scott. (laughs) Totally. It's all stolen from Michael Scott. Totally. But then, you know, at three years old at that level, we got it. Yeah. We understood. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. We think we understand.
0: <laughs> right. I know. So, so how does one get into, how did you become, I mean, I think of you as the preeminent oyster farmer on the West coast.
1: <laughs> I am. No, yeah. I
0: <laughs> well, I mean, I think of it because I know how many do you harvest every year?
1: Just shy of a million. Like I can't break, for some reason that million mark like eludes me and it's just really, mm-hmm. I've finally realized it's just the size of my farm. Yeah. Uh, and we try and get more efficient and get mechanisms, and but we just we run a pretty tight ship, and we just I don't know. Well,
0: and there's <laughs> those, there are those thresholds that yeah. it's like you can't quite break it, can't yeah. quite. And maybe if you acquired more space or if you acquired more people, maybe <clears throat> right. it would go. There. And I'm
1: working on it diligently. We just passed through the process of the California Coastal Commission with mm-hmm. our lease, and that took like two years, a year and a half, two years, a really long time to expand. I have 134 and a half acres okay. and of those I farm right now on like eight. And then, really? right. Um, based on water quality, you have the health department. I'm, I'm highly regulated. So I'm with, sure. yeah, very highly regulated within the, within our lease. Who's uh, it's owned by it's a state water bottom. So California department of fish and wildlife is my landlord. So we go through a permitting process with them. And then the California department of public health has an environmental branch, Mm. other than food and drug, that just monitors our water quality pre-harvest. So they care about you know, if it rains, what's the impact on the farm for potential bacteria? And they they classify our growing area. So this is one of the barriers to entry. That's why there's not 10 farms in my bay. It's because in order to get these leases, you have to maintain really regimented water quality standards. And so we test routinely for bacteria in the water. Mm. And certain areas don't qualify because they look at, 30 months worth of water samples. And if we have a year like 2017 with a ton of rain or, you know, those can start to affect or have impacts. And so we've, we can change our classification and, and open up more land, but there's the, it's, I won't even get into it. So convoluted. Okay. But I'm just,
0: (laughs) I mean, I know you're, so you're regulated by not one, but two government agencies. Right.
1: And then there's the California department of public health, food and drug branch, which is the third. And um, then we had to go through the permitting through the army Corps of engineer, the water quality control board and the, um, coastal commission, California coast commission. Those are three different agencies, each with their own permit.
0: Do you sit at a desk a lot and fill out too much, too
1: much. And that's what I'm finding is that I am just like looking at my office window at the ocean, like, hi, I want Mm. to come back to you. Mm. And this last year or two, I've just spent a lot of time in the office and, um, some good, some bad. I'm, it's also gotten me to kind of rethink and try and recalibrate like, okay, what am I doing? If I'm not, like I said, that million mark, why can't I get over it? I've been doing the same thing. I've been in business since um, 2008 on my own. Mm-hmm. And so is there something that I'm not seeing? So I've brought in some uh, a third party now. I've got a consultant I've hired who mm-hmm. was also a CPA to get a little more strategic and start looking at like, am I just making the same mistake every year? That I'm blind to, and so is it helping? It has to be helping. It is, and I I constantly try and step back from it and say, like, okay, what what else could I be doing, or what should I be doing? Where am I spending my efforts? And Mm. um, because you know you only got so many hours in the day, and like I said, I've got a two year old that takes a lot of my time too, and so I've just got to trying to figure out how to make it all work.
0: A fisherman is not as highly regulated as you. I know that they are, no. you know, I, I, they all feel, I had, right. um, Mark Tognizini on for yeah. the last season and well, he, he knows, he knows, <laughs> he does. But it sounds like you're far more regulated yes. Is it because of the nature of the, yeah. of the product.
1: It's because you're eating a product that filters and feeds and consumes its natural surrounding. And I can't control hmm. the natural surrounding like you can on a farm essentially essentially. And when a cow eats grass, it converts that energy into meat and you eat the meat through that process. But the oyster, you're consuming what it's made and created in its body, plus whatever it's consumed. Mm-hmm. So you have to be really mindful of the environment. And so we are, you know, we're the, I don't know the best word. We're kind of the mm-hmm. the guardians of the bay because we care more about water quality probably than anybody. And so we're constantly mm-hmm. watching for point source pollutions and we work, you know, we love the national Oyster program. They're very diligent yeah. at working on programs, making sure that the watershed's clean because the clean, clean water in clean out. And mm. so, um, for us, that's really important. And, and I haven't even talked about when we harvest our oysters. Now we put them, we have a building on the Embarcadero land-based facility. It's called the depuration facility. Mm. Um, there's only a couple on the West coast and we're the highest regulated food facility in the United States. We have a mandatory monthly inspection that's oh my word. it's carried out. It's required by the FDA and, and carried out by the California department of public health, food and drug branch. Mm. And they come in, they read every document. We have to keep daily records multiple times. It's a, a monthly day. audit. And they come in and that we spend like anywhere from three to five hours. And we just read every document and they'll say, okay, on this day you harvested two or like 21,000 oysters. Now show me where all of those oysters went and you have to account for them like an accountant mm. and you can't be off more than 10%. So um, we've gotten to where we just, we're down to the oyster. And so oh
0: it's like a bean counter, but an uh-huh. oyster counter.
1: Yeah. Every month. Wow. Yep. And so, which I, I'm not here to complain about it It's because no. it's actually allowed us to do some really great things before in 2017, I talked about having a lot of rain before mm-hmm. my tanks. I used to get closed for 12 days when we got 0. 0.4 inches of rain. Mm-hmm. And so in 2017, if everybody remembers, we got a lot of rain and it never stopped and it would rain every 10 days. And so I was closed for five months straight. And oh had I had my tanks, we would have been able to harvest the, the rainfall thresholds are less you when you have a deprivation facility and you can pull as you know, if I have zero oysters in the tank and then we get an open window, I can fill them with just shy of 60,000 oysters mm. and then sell those. They, they sit in the storage tanks that are running bay water from our farm mm-hmm. that we Carry in totes and ferry it three miles down Native the bay. Water, yeah. yeah, from our growing area and then run it through um, filtration, sterilization, and chill it so that the oysters are super, super happy, just kind of dormant. And mm-hmm. in, in, they're kept under 50 degrees where bacteria is not growing. And right. it's really safe at the end when we sell this product. I sleep very well because I know that nobody's going to die from my oysters.
0: Well, that's good. Yeah. And it sounds like <laughs> transporting them would be really tough too, but I know you do distribute pretty yeah. far and wide, right? Yeah,
1: and we use, you know, logistics like UPS and FedEx, uh, FedEx usually out of state UPS ground in state, mm-hmm. um, all the way down to San Diego, up into San Francisco, Tahoe, every once in a while, there's some restaurants. Mm-hmm. used to ship a lot to Vegas. We also ship out to New York to Daniel Balud, uh, Daniel and I York. wanted to
0: talk to you about that because you have a really tight relationship with him.
1: Yeah, I, I'm, he's rad. I'm, I met him. I, I don't know how, what your word I'd use to describe it. He's been great at supporting us. He, um, we met at Pell Beach food and wine a few years back and, um, his whole team is awesome. And he travels with just world-class staff and mm-hmm. they do events for, um, like private firms that'll like rent. The last time we did an event, they rented out the four seasons. Like they bought out the four seasons in Santa Barbara. Can you imagine? No, I no. don't know how. And no. then there was a surprise guest. And so we have, I, I'm just down there for an hour to shuck oysters before, and we has got all this huge spread set out. And, um, and then Alicia Keys walks out and just plays sure. for 30 minutes <laughs> to 200 people <sighs> And I'm like, oh, okay, this is happening.
0: (laughs) You have access to a lot of those kinds of moments, I think, though, don't you? Yeah,
1: through this, it's funny. You know, like oysters just have a little prestige that was built in before I came into oyster farming. And it's kind of, we definitely promote our oysters a premium oyster. And I I cultivate relationships with chefs. And um, it's just great to see where the oysters take us and where the oysters go. And people just really enjoy food. And especially if you grow a great product and take good care of it, people want to enjoy and support that story.
0: Yeah did you ever think as a marine biology major that you'd be like hanging with Daniel Balloon? <laughs> no. Or, yeah. yeah. No. And yeah,
1: <laughs> Katie Perry was at that party. And, I saw and that on Instagram. The best thing is that that picture at first was just supposed to be me and Katie. Then she says, Hey honey, will you take this picture? He hands my phone to Orlando Bloom who I didn't see. I'm like, uh, I'm sorry, but no, Orlando, can you please you get, can you please <laughs> get in this picture? He's like, Oh yeah, sure. I'm like, you guys got to come to my farm. He's like, well, I'm allergic to shellfish. And I'm like, oh no. And well, Katie's like, yeah, <laughs> Katie's like, well, I'm not, we'll, we'll come.
0: <laughs> that is, have they come? Not
1: yet. <laughs> no, I'm sure you get a lot She's of, a sure. We'll come. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, Morro Bay is off the beaten path. So yes, you gotta be wanting to get a little secluded vacation to come by.
0: Totally, that is so funny to me. Yeah, yeah, you've got his fingerprints on your phone, and <laughs> I do wash my phone. I know, two year old. Yeah, right. Totally. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, I have so many questions, especially when you talk about being allergic to shellfish. Um, my not so secret, dirty little secret is that I don't eat
1: seafood. Okay. Um you're allowed to have that. <laughs> so that is a secret. You, you know you're allowed. Oh. Don't worry. No,
0: I've told people before. <laughs> you know, I've said that. Not chefs never um shame me for it. Folks like you never shame me for it. It's mostly just like everyday eaters who are like, "What? How yeah. can you have your job?" Don't you
1: love it. Everybody's a critic.
0: Everybody's a <laughs> critic and I really try not to be but um I don't eat seafood but when my husband and I were traveling around the world we said we would eat anything someone offered to us yeah. which is you know I mean
1: I try not to offer it <laughs> Well so I ate
0: in New Zealand somebody <laughs> offered me these gorgeous um what's the bay there Cloudy Bay oysters Okay they were huge Okay and I did the deed raw into the mouth and it was fine. Everything was fine. I mean, I didn't fine die Fine is not the
1: exemplary <laughs> word. Somebody who's dining wants to really like no. have to use. It's like it asking fine. your
0: husband, how do, how do I look? You look fine. Yeah. yeah like that's the All same right. I'm going to change. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I ate it and everything was okay. But that night, I mean.
1: Your body was, was not happy?
0: No. And so is that the oyster itself or is that maybe me having a really, I know you're not a doctor. Okay, no. but. Is it me reacting because I'm allergic Typically
1: to if you're, well, uh, allergies typically show up like, or a uh, marine biotoxin, if it was the oysters are like it starts as like sometimes numb or tingling lips. Oh. That's more of like an allergy. You start to get the kind of histamine reaction. Yeah. If it's an allergy, you're getting um, like scratchiness in your throat, stuff like that right. typically. Um, no, this was throwing up all night. That, that could be just poorly handled food. Yeah. And Ugh. that's the problem because when you eat at a restaurant, like they're handling all your food, mm-hmm. and you, everybody goes to the low hanging fruit and thinks it's oysters. It's not until you go to the health department and actually get, you know, they test and find out what the actual problem is that they can actually link it back to what you eat. So if you do get food poisoning, I highly recommend that you go to the hospital. They'll yeah. want to collect a sample. They'll test it, and that way they can actually tell. What got you sick? Because there's really specific viruses. You can do that. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's what the health department how, where, does.
0: How do they test you? I mean, like, do
1: you want to get into this?
0: I do actually. My son sample. recently had stool
1: sample. They collect a oh. stool sample. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Do you? <laughs> I do? I still want to <laughs> yeah, get <okay>. it into. it. <laughs> so they collect a stool sample and then they test. They run a panel and there's certain viruses, vibrio parahemolyticus. that is shell, self, shellfish specific mm-hmm. um it's a virus that lives in all waters of the world and it's typically triggered by heat so um that's why we keep everything cold and on ice yeah. and if it's uh temperature abuse it's it's some it's usually present but it's not always producing the it doesn't have a what they call a virulent factor it's mm-hmm. not it's not toxic it's, it's a not
0: agitated it's not yeah. um yeah. Vir- and
1: so and there's marine biotoxins. So there's plankton um, pseudoniches, is a species, for example, that causes a marine biotoxin and it, uh, it can be present and we watch it through, we take plankton samples and you can watch the populations grow and, but it's not always um, producing the acids. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes it's like as the population comes and blooms and as it's dying off and maybe the cell walls break down, then it starts to release the, the toxins and, and it's, if you just drink some seawater that's got the toxin, in it, you're not going to get sick. We're talking about eating, usually it's like sardines that are just swimming through it and like filtering mm-hmm. and eating that all day. Mm-hmm. And then seals eat, you know, hundreds of those and it bioaccumulates and then it gets to a toxic level. M- most of these things never actually make humans sick. We yeah. still test for them. We still get shut down based on them, mm-hmm. but there's no illnesses in California from them. Yeah. Like ever. Yeah. Maybe one ever. And that guy probably just won an oyster eating contest, but. Yeah. Well,
0: I mean, the guy who's uh, you know, like I said, we said we'd eat anything and this guy kind of showed up yeah, at the tasting room we he were is. working and he's like, I got these oysters. I got them today. Let's eat them. And yeah. come to think of it, they were a little warm.
1: Yeah. Uh. Yeah. California. You're pretty safe in California. We have a very diligent health department. Yeah. I mean, you just can't mess around and it's a litigious state. So nobody wants, I carry a lot of insurance. Nobody wants to sure. run into that, but. Yeah. We're, like I said, highly regulated. Yeah. And I was
0: talking to somebody, a student yesterday at Cal Poly who was saying, what's the best place in the world to eat? And I'm certainly not the expert, it's a huge but, question. but I care about it a little bit. And so, um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I said, you know, to be perfectly honest, it's here because we, our food is so safe. I mean, yes, you can hear all the negative, yeah. you know, Romaine lettuce, all that. I, I hear you. I get it. And yet we have clean drinking water right. to clean the you know, to clean everything. We've got all this regulation and it's not for nothing. Right. Um, so it's yeah. reactionary,
1: really. All yeah. the laws that are in place are reactionary.
0: Because something happened. Something
1: happened and now we have to regulate that. Or oh, you know, this is something we didn't know could make people sick. We need to regulate that and mm-hmm. it just adds up. Yeah. So
0: Tell me about how you grew up. Do I remember Oregon? Is that right?
1: Uh, I, so I, I was born in Chicago, grew up in the Bay Area near east of San Francisco, mm-hmm. and then uh, went to college at University of Oregon. That's right. Okay. And uh, moved up there. They have an exceptional exceptional marine biology program. And mm-hmm. so um, since I was five, I, my parents used to take me to Mendocino to the tide pools. And I just always had an affinity and love for the ocean. And I knew I wanted to be a marine biologist but I didn't even know what that meant. I just heard it was a job. I'm like, that's what I want to do Wait, Mm -hmm. they work at the, like the aquarium. Maybe I saw the scuba (laughs) diver and he was a marine biologist. I'm like, yes, that's me. Uh, so right out of high school, I went to university of Oregon and, um, got into marine biology courses pretty early on. They have an Oregon Institute of marine biology. It's on the coast in Coos Bay. And, uh, that's where I studied invertebrate zoology, marine ecology, and the courses were, it was insane. I was in my, I was a sophomore, and I was talking to my TA from one of my uh, my biology classes. And I, I said that I was going to Oregon Institute of Marine Biology uh, next term. And he says, oh, me too. I'm like, oh, are you teaching? And he goes, uh, no, I'm actually in the class you just said. I'm like, what do you mean you're in my class? He goes, oh, it's a senior level, graduate level course. And I'm like, What? <laughs>
0: You were already in it. Yeah,
1: it got thrown right in, and uh, I, I don't normally brag because I was a horrible student. I really was, and I doubt that uh, the but way in, you're
0: talking. I doubt that, but go on. But in
1: invertebrate zoology, I got straight A's in my marine biology courses, yeah. and like I really didn't have to study because I was just so you loved it. I loved it. It wasn't even. I would just be re- listening to the lecture instead of falling asleep or drawing, and I was just engaged. And mm-hmm. so for that course, invertebrate zoology, for the we wake up in the morning and go to the tide pools every every day that we had class. And then we would collect all the specimens that that of the phylum that we we're going to study that day. Come back, have an hour and a half lecture on it, and then have lunch, and come back, and then have like a four hour lab. And then there was wow. you had to be there for at least four hours, but then you could stay as late as you wanted. And so it was just really involved and
0: intensive. It sounds like oh
1: yeah. And okay. so um, I left there with just kind of understanding okay i went through this material and i loved it and i can really excel at it but now lifestyle wise i can't see myself in a lab i don't want to be doing like grant work and um i just didn't see it as fulfilling is that
0: a lot of what a marine biologist is doing well yeah in the lab in writing grants
1: so many marine biologists really get a degree and they're like what am i going to do with this Or like Mm -hmm. am i going to work in an aquarium i mean it's that's like again like the low-hanging fruit but Mm -hmm. that job is really not as technically required as most people think there might be like a head marine biologist for the aquarium and then employees, Yeah, <laughs> you know, and, um, and so you can work at a college and do research. And when you do that, you're going to be teaching and, you know, getting grants to support your getting funding for your yeah. projects. And so you have to come Constantly. up with something that's, you know, viable and interesting. And, you know, I, I wasn't, that just didn't seem like a path for me. And my dad was just awesome. He uh they always really helped cultivate. I drew a lot in high school and they're like, Oh, maybe you could be an artist and mm-hmm. you know, they're really encouraging whatever direction I wanted to go. And um my dad said, Well, have you heard of aquaculture? And I'm like, I, I mean I've heard the word, but I don't really know anything about it. This is in um like two thousand and two, um mm-hmm. uh, middle of college. And he says, Well, you should look into it. It's like an up and coming field. There's a lot of uh, you know, farming in the ocean. And I'm like, Oh, okay. So I went and talked to my advisor um, who my dad and him grew up in the same tiny little town in Georgia. So I, not everybody's buddies with their advisor, but I was <laughs> a neuroscience professor. And uh, he says, "Oh yeah, you've got to go Oregon State, our rival." He says they go every year. They have a program down in the Sea of Cortez at the Tec de Monterey in Guaymas, Mexico, which is oh. right in the middle on the me- mainland side. It's right in the middle of the Sea of Cortez or in Baja. Yeah. yeah. So eight hour north, eight hour drive north of Mazatlan, mm. and they they have a high school. And they have a college connected to it, and it's kind of like their Harvard of, of Mexico. And they, um, they have a, a pearl oyster farm where they grow the cultured pearls, and then they have a, a shrimp farming's huge down there. And so they have um, a small operation where they farm prawns as well. Hmm. And so they told me all my classes would be in English. It's all good. And I got down there. All my upper division classes were in Spanish. Do I had, you speak Spanish? I do now. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Did you have any Spanish? I had. Poquito? Let's see, poquito.
1: Yeah. <laughs> poquito. I had, let's see. Yeah. Middle school. I took two years of Spanish oh and two gosh. years in high school that I really paid attention to.
0: Well, and, you know, t- <laughs> right. Taking a class is completely different from just functional Spanish.
1: Yeah. Here you're speaking. Yeah. Or writing like a six page technical, technical right, for instance. upper division biology course. How'd you paper. do that? I don't know. Yeah. I really just kind of blacked out. I think and got through. You it. were motivated. <laughs> yeah, I was. To, yeah, I was. It was difficult, um, but like giving a presentation, it was just like kind of embarrassing. Yeah. But the content of what it, what I was learning was amazing, and they had the hurricane season, which I had no idea about because mm. I didn't pay attention to what the news was happening. I, apparently, they get like ten or twelve hurricanes every mm. year down in Cabo.
0: Suddenly, it matters <laughs> to you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right.
1: Surpassing so right by our door, twenty kilometers offshore, and so the the cages that they grew the that they were holding the, the pearl oysters in were sixty feet down, and mm. I had just completed a diving course through PADI certified diving down there, which was amazing. We're in like um, eighty four degree water at sixty feet down, wow. like a hundred foot visibility. It's just like this wow. is where I really got into the lifestyle of it, yeah. and the takati was really good down yeah, there. Always. And so yeah. uh, after the hurricane, their pens all got flipped over and like disheveled, and so um, they had me go down in 60 feet, I'm down there holding a rope with a buoy on it. And another guy is, we've tied off a rope to one of the cages and the boat up there is going to tow it to flip it. And so I'm using a buoy and he's using a buoy to kind of tell the boat which direction to go to kind of get in line with each other. High tech
0: communication. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm
1: sitting there and then uh, just a school of sardines is surrounding me and they're just, and then as I'm staring straight up 60 feet of water, there's just tuna fish darting in and I'm just like immersed in this. And I was sitting down there just thinking like, this is what I'm going to do.
0: You were happy about See when you oh, tell me yeah. that I start to panic
1: oh, like it was just how amazing. am I going to get out of here There was a little bit of that food chain moment but sure. I I just you know it was amazing it Aww. was just amazing I'm sitting here like these cages this man-made structure 60 feet down we're solving problems after a huge catastrophe and this business is depending on what we do And it's all in the middle of like deep, rich nature. It was just pretty amazing.
0: Yes, that does. I mean, even in the way you're talking about it, it's clear that that's where you belong. Yeah, it was for for sure. sure. (laughs) So really quick backing up. What was it like growing up in Chicago? I can't. Who knows? (laughs) I was
1: three when we moved. (laughs) Oh, you were. Okay, sorry. And you
0: moved to where did you say? To
1: Danville. It's a little bubble, a little bubble up east of uh, San Francisco.
0: Yeah. I had a good friend in
1: college who was from Danville. Everybody knows somebody from Danville, which is really odd.
0: (laughs) But I mean, where I went to school is 3000 miles away. So it was interesting. There were a lot of Californians. Yeah. Yeah. I had
1: 512 students in my graduating class and I'd say maybe like 50 of them didn't go off to college. Yeah. Everybody travels and then most of them stay where they go. Yeah.
0: Okay, yeah. so East Bay though, I mean not not at the ocean a whole lot, but like you said no. your parents took in, as yeah, you to Minnesota. Yeah, they
1: took we went on a lot of camping trips. We just spent a lot of time outdoors, you know. We grew up in a really wealthy area in like an older part of town and my parents um they did okay, but we, you know, our vacations weren't like traveling to France and Paris yeah. and all over the world, it was more like, Hey, let's get in the van and go camping. And, mm-hmm. or, um, I mean, we just, I've been everywhere in California, every campsite I've probably been to, yeah. whether I, it was the desert, which just like makes me parched to think about death Valley. I just couldn't, that really, is not your job. <laughs> I hated it as a kid, you know, but anything You're on the ocean, water animal. yeah. Anything yeah. on the water. If we go fly fishing, I, was, I think I started fly fishing when I was in the sixth grade with my dad. Mm-hmm. I think he saw a river run through it and had like a, a come to Jesus moment. We need one of die. my top. Five favorite movies of all the time. Best. Yep. <laughs> the best. So yep. my dad was really inspired, and, and, like, literally the next day he bought a rod and was out on the grass, like, mm-hmm. pra- practicing, learning how to fly fish, and got me and my brother into it. Wow. And so, yeah. Where,
0: which river did you do it
1: on? We fished a lot up north. Uh, I started on the Stanislaus River, which mm-hmm. I never caught any fish, and I just thought I was a horrible fisherman. But then we went to the Pit River up uh, by Bernie, and we were just slaying them. Now you're kidding. <laughs> yeah. 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 And we hired a guide, and he just really kind of fine-tuned like I could cast but I didn't really know how to like set a hook and really the like more intricacies of fly fishing and so that changed my game too and And
0: do you still do it a lot
1: no I mean I wish I would love to I think
0: I'm not might be wrong but isn't it kind of
1: expensive in terms of it's just as initial setup
0: okay but it's a technical and an art form as river runs yeah. through it teaches us and i
1: actually got to take a fly fishing course at co- in college Ooh, <laughs> I, I took amazing. all my upper division courses actually in my earlier year so senior year i was just left with like hey you need credit so i was taking like anthropology 101 as a senior <laughs> and fly fishing was one of them and uh which sounds great but then you go out to like fish on a river and you've got 20 other students and you have to be within i Shot of your teacher. I'm like, well, nobody's going to catch anything here. Yeah, right, right. Like, it's about getting away and getting secluded and stalking your prey. But
0: And that's so Oregon <laughs> yeah. to have a, a yeah, fly right. fishing. Class. Right, right. <laughs> well, um, so he's going to ask you about what is a typical day. Well, no, 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 hold on you were in um, Mexico. How'd you wind up here? You have no roots here necessarily. I don't.
1: I don't. So, um, after I graduated, I had reached out to, um, some of the people that I went to school with were amazing. Like their head was, their families were like the head of tourism for the state of, um, Sinaloa. Um, and other people had friends that had massive, um, shellfish farms in Baja. And so I got a job offer to go to Guerrero Negro, which is halfway up Baja, but on the um, on the Pacific side. Mm-hmm. And it's really pristine out there. It's just really, really secluded. And um, they were going to pay me like $600 a month or 600 pesos a month. It was not going to pay for my student loan and, and then have mm-hmm. anything left. And my parents, when I was gone to Mexico, I never called them. It was really hard for me to figure out. This is pre pre-technology yeah, right. and so it was really hard like I had to go buy calling cards and have sure. my minutes and nobody even knows what that is anymore and then find a phone <laughs> yeah and I didn't have a <laughs> phone and so my mom was like I, if you go to Mexico we're never going to see you again I'm like please just take our car start at like the first oyster farm there's farms up in Tomales Bay just start there take your resume and just drive down the coast of San Diego take the car for a week and just go drop off your resume and which is so cool for yeah, my parents that's to do so cool. <laughs> you know yeah. and uh and so I I graduated in June and then in November I started work at Tomales Bay Oyster Company, which was my second stop on that route. And, and isn't
0: that a pretty benchmark kind of they're place? Huge. Yeah. they
1: They were like one of the originals. They were, um, their old colors were like Navy gray because when it was all military up there, they were serving mainly military installments oh. and, uh, they, they've been around. I couldn't even tell you the early times, but I know they were there in the fifties yeah. and, um, uh, the previous owner, Uh, Drew Alden, who was my boss. He had been oyster farming for like 25 years, I think when he hired me Mm. and he had just purchased the lease in Morro Bay and, um, four months before he hired me and they had planted 3 million baby oysters, excuse me. And then a, a red tide came through and killed like over 90% of them. So he had just lost a massive investment and, um, he hired me. Uh, and I want to say like one week later, he hired me for a year. I was supposed to stay in Tamaulce Bay, train, learn how to farm oysters. Cause I was green out of college. And um, my first day of work, he said, hey, next Monday I need you to move to Morro Bay. Uh, the foreman um, is illegal immigrant doesn't have any papers and got arrested for driving without a license isn't in jail for a month so i said okay i put willing to relocate on my resume so (laughs) i guess i'm going to relocate now rubber to the road yeah and so um luckily my best friend was going to cal poly i literally came down in the car crashed on his couch until i found a place and um my spanish education continued cuz all the employees here didn't speak english and so it was like 40 hours a week of spanish they were they had been in oyster farming for years and so they were teaching me as well so i got like 4 years of kind of oyster college
0: mm.
1: like in the farm yeah. and really learn the farm because it was a new farm and so we were kind of making mistakes and expensive ones and learning where what areas grow better we were looking at studies that were coming out of france saying that your oysters need to be exposed 20% of the day to air mm. to get the right amount of stress. And so we were playing with all this different location and methods. And if I had done that on my own dime, I would not have survived. It yeah. really took that, that, um, old money company yeah. that could, and it's expensive, it. that kind of yeah. exploration. Yeah, It was, it was. And, uh, so it was really critical though. Cause, um, after those four years, I really understood my lease and the little microcosms within it. And, um, it allowed me to, hit the ground running too when he sold me the company. I was 25 when yeah, I, I was gonna it. was going to
0: say, did you know it was going to become yours? No,
1: I didn't. Okay. And, uh, yeah, he, he hired a consultant. He, he had really young children. He was, I think he was like 55 and he had like a two year old mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, 10, no, I want to say six or seven. They well were done. like really, yeah. And, um, he, he could afford to sell the other company and the real estate up there alone was worth much more. And I'm so sure. he, um, he was able to get out of the game and, um, go on to other things, but just a great man. I wanted to be home with his kids and mm, just a great mm-hmm. family guy. And, um, and so he sold me the, the production farm down here. Cause the gentleman who bought his operation already had a production farm. Uh, he was known as a production farmer up there and supplied a lot of farms. And so he didn't want an asset six hours away that he had to try and yeah. manage. And so my boss sold me, uh, the farm for, some, kind of like peanuts but it was 2008 which was a really tough time mm. to get money and um it was a really kind of uncertain time markets were crashing if anybody remembers 2008 and i was 25 and I, nobody was Neil. gonna like give me any money that's so,
0: incredible yeah
1: so my dad came in and uh just gave me a loan to get started and he had he was semi-retired he worked with um for chevron originally lawn and garden like ortho lawn and garden products mm-hmm. they developed like we'd be gone and um, right. miracle grow and uh like the original worldly bird that spreads grass seeds <laughs> he has like the og prototype yeah. right at our house mm-hmm. um that they bought the patent from the the guy who made out um but so my dad had experience in logistics and um was just a really great mentor as well so i had drew my previous boss who was always a mentor and then my dad as well and um I was just I thought, oh man, he sells millions of oysters. This is going to be great. This is going to be easy. People are just going to come buy the oysters. I just have to set up shop on the dock and it's over. And that was a rude awakening. And I had you needed marketing. You needed promotion. Yeah, Yeah, like every business, I wasn't immune to it. And so I started going to farmers markets, like every farmers market. And I was working eight days a week. I go to a farmers market, then I go set up my same booth. I'd set up on like Highway 41, right right outside of Morro Bay. And I'd set the lights up. So it was dark. And and like on the side of the road, but I I would kill it on the side of the highway. So it did work. Yeah, it worked, but it was a hustle. I'd be stoked. I'm like, I made $300. This is awesome. And I didn't realize like, you know, for oysters. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But that's fine for myself, but to run a business, that's not enough. And so it was, um,
0: and this is with how many employees at the time
1: at this time I was like three or four, maybe three. Really. We were pretty small. We were really small. Um, and every, everything I was barely paying myself and everything I made has just always really gone back in the business. I'm just learning to start paying myself. And even then I'm not doing enough, but, um, still in the growth phase after a decade. I'm surprised. (laughs) Well, I mean,
0: it seems, well, you definitely got the marketing and promotion thing down. We're
1: working on that. Yeah. Always. We've just gotten really lucky and blessed with people that are interested in the story. And, you know, right away we got a story with sunset magazine that really made a big splash for us. And, um, and that that really helped because we were selling off the dock and, and selling off the side of the road. It wasn't until I, I started going to farmers markets that I met chefs and that I mm. totally reimagined my business because I'd meet a chef and he would buy in that one instance he would buy more than I sold the whole market. And I said, okay, we need to start.
0: That's where it is going after
1: the chefs. And okay. I had a, a small background in like the summers I'd work in commercial real estate and go cold calling, mm-hmm. and I loved it. And so I just went cold calling and changed my story instead of talking about real estate. I'm now talking about my product, and it was a natural sell because. I know so much about it. And even if I don't say anything, if I just put the oysters out, they, they do a lot of talking for themselves. So
0: you're a very special and different person, Neil. You're very, (laughs) very in a good way. Very (laughs) ambitious. Were you, do you have siblings? Were you the firstborn?
1: No, I'm not. I I have a sibling. He's older than me. He's two years older. Wow. Okay.
0: Okay, so that that stereotype's broken. What about like type A maybe?
1: No, I'm pretty lazy. You-
0: <laughs> Who is this person? No, He's a mystery rep I a just riddle.
1: I get really inspired and excited about like when I talk to other entrepreneurs and I hear about their jobs and they start talking about any of the pitfalls, and I just really associate with that, and I want to solve mm-hmm. problems, like if you tell me, you know. Like you told me you got sick. I'm like, okay, now I want to find out what got you yeah. sick, and, and I'm gonna solve that problem. Bring the sample to right. the hospital. <laughs> <All> <laughs> and then we'll solved. stay away from that. But like, if I hear about some of these business problems, like uh, we we just Brian from Ember, like yeah. we've had talks, or we have like we're good buddies. He was actually the first restaurant I sold to was Full Life Flatbread, and he was working with Clark at yes. And so um, oh, that's a good him. account to have. Yeah, yeah, great. And so and now I mean he uses us at Ember uh, as he rotates his uh, menu, you know, fur- furiously, but. Mm-hmm. um he, uh, he and I, especially when he was building Ember, were just, you know, hey, how did you do this? What did you do here? How? You know, like just really mm-hmm. ping pong ideas back and forth. And it's, I really get inspired by hearing other people's stories and, solve sometimes my wife's like you should just be a consultant <laughs> and well I'm like, maybe
0: someday you will be maybe, you know maybe. in addition
1: <laughs> but i mean i just you know i don't have the confidence to maybe think that my ideas are, are what is really going to help people but i just i'm always but kind together, of off ideas yeah. yeah
0: and together we can i mean there are certain things that won't apply to ember that apply to you but right. if we all work together and kind of learn together. Right.
1: But you know, you've always had that friend who's like in a relationship and they can't see the problem, but you can see it, you know? Oh, and, yes. you know, and yeah. so it's that way about business sometimes too. Like you're married to your business and you, you're just in it and you don't see the problem, but it's to other people. Sometimes it's so glaringly obvious, mm-hmm. but it's always hard to change. And so I've had, that's where I was talking about. I've had to look back at my business and be like, okay, what am I married to in my business that I'm, I'm not seeing that other people yeah. might. And that's why, again, I brought in the third party because yeah. blind trying, spots. Yeah. Cause yeah. I also was, you know, a little arrogant to think like, Oh, I'm fine. I got this. I don't need other people's advice. And, and, uh, I'm, I'm 37 now, so I can get rid of that so kind old. of, I can, get, so I can get rid of that, <laughs> that childish thought. Uh,
0: yes. <laughs> yes, totally. Okay. So I was going to ask you before, <laughs> talk to me about what a, you know, in a nutshell, what is a typical day for somebody who's out on the water?
1: Yeah. So we, well, normally we start at 8:30. yesterday. My guys have decided they want to start at seven, just, mm. So they have a little more um, light in the day when they and get they out can of do that. Oh yeah, okay. Uh, only not normally, uh, and, and that most oyster farms work really with the tide, and we do too to an extent. But um, we don't. We have a mud flat, so at low tide it's mud; you just walk on it, and at high tide it's covered in five or six feet of water. And so to get to oysters in the back corner, you need water to get there. But what we've developed over the years is a system that's kind of mobilized, and so our oysters grow in a floating line, and we can um, at high tide we can untie each end and use our boat to drag it over into the channel mm. that has only existed on our farm since 2012 when the tsunami carved a 20 foot deep channel through our mud flat
0: has that been handy
1: yeah, awesome yeah now my guys work nine-to-five because we parked our barge in the channel and we can queue up lines in the channel so tomorrow if it's gonna be low tide when they start but it's high tide when they get off the day before they just have to plan for it and so they'll queue up lines in the channel mm. and then they can pull them up on the barge you know, even if the mud's dry, there'll still be water in the channel. They can just drive right to the barge. That's so cool. And what if the channel disappears or moves or this something? This is the conversation we had yesterday. It slowly is filling back in, and uh-huh. it won't be there forever. And my guys are, like, pretty cozy. Yeah. And I just kind of gave them the idea of, hey, you might have to come in the middle of the night. Like... I'm like telling the old war stories. I used to come out here at <laughs> two in the morning. and
0: How did that go over? They were like,
1: uh, wait, boss, I didn't sign up for that. We need to talk. What do you mean? What's the schedule you're talking about? I'm like, hey, I just flown the idea. Don't yeah. worry. It's years out.
0: You've been very lucky out. with this nine to five. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's years yeah. out, but it very well could be. I mean, nature changes. Yeah. So. For
0: sure. So they get out there, 8.30.
1: Yeah, usually they get out. They start at like 8 or 8.30. On Fridays, they start at 7, 7.30. And they'll. it's a 30-minute boat ride out to the farm. It's in a no-wake zone, so we've got to go really slow. Mm-hmm. We drive from basically the mouth of the bay. At our, our headquarters is right next to the U.S. Coast Guard office. Yeah. And so they get on the boat there. They drive up into the bay, and they'll get to the farm and um, kind of clean up from whatever mess was left from the night before. And then start um either doing farm maintenance so they'll if the tide's high in the morning they need to do some maintenance they'll all put on their wetsuit and jump in the water first thing and physically go down the lines and shake the bags because the stress that we put on the oysters, if we're shaking them, the oysters bang into each other and chip off the new shell growth yeah. as they're trying to grow shell. And that's shell. the kind of agitation that they Yeah. Do. And so as you chip that shell, instead of growing this new thin frilly shell, they'll put a, a hard, another layer on the existing hard shell. And so as they do that, it causes the oyster to form a deeper cup. Mm. And so you can kind of sculpt them. So they're growing raw, natural, using natural plankton. And we're not feeding them or adding anything to them, but... The bags we grow them in are are this plastic mesh bag that keeps predators out. But then we can put 180 oysters per bag, keep them organized, and work off little bite-sized pieces throughout the day. And and then as you as you shake those bags up, it just kind of um, the ones that are on the bottom not getting food move to the top and get food. So they're just kind of you just got to keep them constantly kind of moving and percolating. Yeah. And so the more the more stress you give, the more consistent when you go to hand sort them at the end, you won't get like all of them being submarket size up to these large oysters you'll get everything kind of this similar size mm. and if that's not happening we have a mechanical sorter it's a tube with different um, hole sizes in it so the first half of the tube uh, has the smallest and it goes up from there and so we'll dump the oysters through a hopper they'll go through this tumble sorter and um so the little guys are the ones they fall out first yeah. the twos fall out second and then the third ones the biggest ones fall at the end and then we can take those oysters that have been really damaged through this process and put them back out as returns but now you're putting out a new line that's separated by size mechanically um, that doesn't take like a new employee could do that on day 1 because it doesn't take any skill to like discern between yeah. them uh and so they'll put them back out and so when those come back out for the hand sorters they've already been graded and so that person who's making the decision now is not deciding between cocktail extra small small medium large they're deciding between cocktail and extra small in that mm. sort or simpler. small and medium. It's a lot simpler and a lot faster. Mm. So it goes from sorting like 5,000 oysters a day to like eleven or 12,000 oysters a day.
0: Okay, mm. I have a very stupid question. They you all know, are. <laughs> they, <laughs> <laughs> hey, I like that, that. All <laughs> questions are stupid. Well, you know, liberal arts major here, You you talked a little bit about in Mexico, mm-hmm. pearl oysters. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Neil, but what's the difference? How are they different, a pearl oyster versus an eating oyster? Okay, next
1: time you go to a restaurant and watch somebody else eat an oyster, mm-hmm. look at the oyster shell and look at the color of it. Yeah. And like my oysters are white inside, but they don't have a lot of luster. Like the pearl knacker isn't built up like an abalone has that shiny luster. A pearlescent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so it, it, they can get that, but it takes a long time. Um, and so if my oysters were used to make pearls, that's the color they would be. Cause it's the tissue, the meat that's secreting that shell. And so, um, in the sea of Cortez where I was, the oyster is a different species. It doesn't have as big full body. You wouldn't really want to use them as mm-hmm. like an edible oyster. They're mm-hmm. edible of course, but they're not, they just, they have a different morphology where they don't, they look almost more like a scallop. They don't have like a deep cup. Yeah. They're more like the, they're bivalves, but they're more equal on both sides instead of having like, our oysters just have a deep cup on one and a flat side on the other. Yes. So they don't really get a big full body, but when you open them, the shells are beautifully amazing mm-hmm. inside. And, um, and so they, they'll go through and they'll just shuck oysters until they find the color and the luster that they want. Mm. Then they'll take that meat and they'll take a scalpel and they'll make a little strip. They'll cut like a 10 millimeter. This is metric now. They yeah. cut a 10 millimeter strip and, and that tissue, it's not like our circulatory system. There's just oysters have like what's called a blood bath, which sounds crazy, but <laughs> it just circulates water and the nutrients within its system. And so it doesn't need blood vessels yes. the same way. And so they, um, they take that 10 millimeter piece and they'll cut it down into little two millimeter pieces. Mm-hmm. So you've got five little pieces and then they'll take a, a they'll use a nucleus, which is often like either a synthetic, um, ball, it's a sphere. So they find a sphere that, that, um, will be the adjutant that that mm-hmm. tissue is going to grow around
0: natural or something that they so make. That
1: they can either make it or they'll use, um, like freshwater mussel or mm-hmm. freshwater clam pearls mm-hmm. and which grow are a little more ready, readily available. They could farm for those too, And so then they take that, and they um, they anesthetize the oyster. They put it in a solution that just kind of makes their muscle weaken a little bit. And they wedge them open. And it's a little surgical procedure. They just go in with a scalpel and make a little slice in their gonad, which is just kind of the main part of their body. And they push um, they push that little nucleus in there. And then they put the little two millimeter piece of tissue with it. And Close it up and let it go. Four years later, if it took and that tissue survived, and it'll grow around the nucleus mm-hmm. inside the gonad because there's no other mantle tissue in there. But they'll find each other and, and it'll grow like a little Ugh. sack around that nucleus. Yeah. And four years later, you get a pearl. And they four years later they shuck the and they shuck them and it could be you know that pearl could be anywhere like you know from a few hundred dollars to a few thousand dollars depending on what they get. Mm-hmm. And you know they string a necklace from there and.
0: Somebody recently asked me, it was a question for a magazine. They asked, what do you think is the closest thing to magic? And as you describe that, it's gotta be that.
1: Yeah. Pearls are rad. And w- really wild pearls, you know, the sea of Cortez was really developed because Cortez came and found these pearls where it's like one in 10 oysters had a pearl. Wow. Now it's over like one in 10,000. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the center of that it was because there was a parasite there was a worm that bored through the shell that agitated it's not a grain of sand that's agitated i mean they get like sand they thinks. get sand all day yeah. i mean um, but it's a parasitic worm that bores through the shell and um, the oyster then secretes the shell uh, the pearl around it to protect itself but it was har- over harvested and so you get rid of the home you get rid of the parasite and mm-hmm. so that the parasites just not as common anymore so um, now the rarity of finding a let alone finding a pearl, but then finding a perfect one. That's the same size as another one to put in a string. I mean, pearl necklaces, you know, six figures easy.
0: It's gotta be one. It's, uh, do we call it a gem? I don't know, but whatever it is, it's one of my favorites. I don't know what you call it. Yeah, really?
1: I don't know. I never thought of that.
0: Yeah. Well, I love pearls now I love them even more, especially because the little worm, the little parasite, such an icky thing, but what a beautiful thing comes out of that is incredible. Yeah. Um, let me ask you, uh, ask everybody what they would eat at their final meal if you had a choice. Oh. And it, well, this we'll is I a joyous it. occasion. Um, yeah. I'm going to assume it's not oysters because you probably eat them a lot. Am I wrong in thinking? You're
1: probably right. I might have one just for like sentimental sake. Right. Okay. That makes sense. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like a, a mousse bouche. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, um, And it's been your life's work right. and it signifies But something. I always think like... I want to meet a tomato farmer because I feel like they probably don't eat caprese salad all the time. You know, I oh, love caprese but I salad, but, I, you yeah, know, yeah. but I just, I don't look at them like food all the time. It's only yeah. when I go to food events and I work with a chef, I'm like, oh, that looks good. I'm going to try that's that. That's a great point. Yes. Right. <laughs> you know, um, that's a great question. I don't know. I'd probably have a, a steak. Yeah. I'd have a Chateaubriand. Briand. It's oh, <laughs> what gosh. I would do. It's yeah. what I used to, when I was little, my mom would always buy one. We'd slice it up and it would share it within the family. And when I got to be like nine, I'm like, I want my own Chateaubriand. Yeah. And I was like, all right. And I just like a top sirloin steak. I didn't know what the name was, but that's what my mom called it. And I would just eat like a one pound steak to myself. Oh my gosh. It's and it's gross. sentimental. No, 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 no. I mean. <laughs> but I love a good medium rare steak. Yes. Ribeye, right. You know.
0: Oh gosh. Well, let me come and have steak with you sometime. Please. Yeah. Thanks for coming over. Uh, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to Consumed. It is a labor of love, and I appreciate anyone willing to give me their ears for an hour. Consumed is edited by Chris Lambert. If you have ideas for guests I should interview on Consumed, please visit the contact page at letsgetconsumed.com and be sure to sign up for the Consumed newsletter. Until next time, this is Jamie Lewis. Thanks for getting consumed with me.